Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray we'd be able to connect the dots to life. I pray we'd see ourselves in need of the application that you're bringing out here. And Lord, we need wisdom to connect the dots to understand what you wrote all these years ago to see how it connects in context to where we are today, to where we are in 2022, this Christmas season. I pray, Lord, that you be my strength, and I pray, Lord, you be glorified and honored. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We got your Bibles this morning, 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. This morning we're looking at a story of war, grace, power, and judgment. A story of war, grace, power, and judgment. To to get sort of an idea of how we're going to look at this today, we're basically dealing with a series of battles once we get into chapter 20. And we're going to see how Ahab has three battles with Ben-Hadad. I have to remember, it's like saying, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad, how are you? So uh, Ben-Hadad, hey, Dad, I can't say it, Ben-Hadad. And uh, he's going to have three battles, and two of them are going to be represented in chapter 20. And one's going to be represented in chapter 22. Um, just to get your bearings, the first one's going to be Ben-Hadad's going to come down from Damascus into Samaria. The second one is going to be seen in verse 26 when Ben-Hadad comes down to Aphek. And then in chapter 22, he's going to come down to Ramoth-Gilead. And and what we see here is is that these battles are going to give us insight not only into God's power, but, but as the title suggests, his power, his grace, his judgment, so many different attributes of God we're going to be able to observe. And this morning, what we're going to do to seek to just get some handles on the narrative is we're going to look at this in five different scenes, five different scenes. Scene number one, chapter 20, verses one through 12. And we see Syria here and Ben-Hadad in the battle with Ahab. The battle with Ahab. We look at um, this map, and what I want you to see is, is that you've got Samaria down at the bottom, and that's how far that the line, that red dotted line goes in the middle there in the bottom. He's going to come all the way down to Samaria. Later on in verse 26, you're going to see the northern area, uh, Aphek, and then in chapter 22 on the far, further to the east, you're going to see Ramoth Gilead. And so when we look at this, Ahab is an evil man. We've learned more and more about him. We saw last week how life in the valley looked for Elijah, and we saw that once Jezebel gave her threat to his life, it put him in a tailspin. We saw how the Lord was faithful and ministered to him through that. Ahab is a wicked man, and now as you move into chapter 20, you almost anticipate, okay, this is the end. This is the end of of Ahab. Now we see God's messenger of judgment coming from Syria. And the the narrative gives you a surprise throughout this. We we jump in verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. He had a coalition of 32 kings in my research, mainly like the idea of Leaders of tribal groups um, that came in. So 32 of these came with him. He's got a massive army. He closes in on Samaria, verse 2, and he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. When we look at verse 4, we begin to see the fact that Ahab is going to concede. And when you look at ancient war, one of the goals of the king that was under siege 
when he recognized that everything was happening in a way that was out of his control, he often would concede in order to try to save the city, in order to keep it from going to ruins, to keep it from going to rubble. He, he seeks to take a concession. And in verse 4, And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. In verse 5, The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. He goes back on his concession, and the more that he thinks about it, he's like, no, actually, I'm going to take a lot more. I'm coming for everything I want. And at this point, Ahab doesn't like it, and Ahab pushes back. In verse 7, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Things start to heat up. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And they're talking some serious back and forth here. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions, and they took their positions against the city. I think the NIV really hits the heart of verse 9. The NIV says, then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough Dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. He basically is saying, I'm not just coming at you. I'm going to ruin this place. And there's not going to be enough dust left in Samaria even to give to my men in a handful. And and, and one of the uh, commentators pointed out, and, and as I was trying to understand this, it, it basically, when, when he makes the comment about, hey, you know, don't get cocky putting on your armor like you're taking it off, it's sort of like the old adage, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You, you can come in here talking a big game, but don't start declaring what's going to happen here. And then we get into scene number two. We see a shocking turn of events. And this really is shocking because at this point, Ahab, there's no one that has been more evil in Israel than Ahab. And what takes place next is just not something you would see coming. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, seven Thousand. Now remember, who is this guy Ahab? Ahab in chapter 16, verse 30, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And now, God, one more time, is going to make clear to Ahab and to the people who he is. One of the warnings that immediately pops out here is, Don't devalue the grace of God in your life. 
he keeps pursuing in kindness, in his love, and in his mercy. Again, I, I, I say this a lot, but it, it really is a pet peeve of mine. Don't fall into the trap that the Old Testament God's not a God of grace. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What is he doing here? He keeps revealing himself. He keeps pursuing his people. What's phenomenal is that there is, even in, and we're going to see this later on, after we get into the vineyard story in chapter 21, and we see this wicked man finally shows some half-hearted, what it seems like, signs of repentance. Even after all of it, even though it doesn't even seem like a complete repentance, what we see is God even shows mercy to Ahab then in his judgment. He doesn't allow Ahab to see it in his own lifetime. It's something that comes to later on. But what we see is the continuous grace of God. It's surprising. It is scandalous. It is shocking. And now we see the plan. There's going to be these servants of the governors of the Lord. Um, you got this sense, as, as one commentator said, these commandos, the 232 of them, with 7,000 behind them, and they're going to do an afternoon ambush. And so now they've, they've had their give and take. Ahab said, look, I'll give you this. Ben-Hadad says, no, I want it all. Now they're going to battle. It, it looks like now it's just a matter of moments and matter of hours before Samaria is in rubble and in ruins. But there's an afternoon ambush that God works in a way that's mysterious. In verse 16, And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze, he and the 32 kings who helped him. People act and speak in such a way that is reflective of their heart. And you see this not only with Ahab, but you see it with Ben-Hadad. The way you live, the way you act, the way you treat your leisure, the way you are is reflective of your heart before God. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We forget that, that our life manifests our hearts. Uh, some people, they, they keep this false dichotomy and they believe, well, God knows my heart, but they neglect everything that's obvious about their life. What comes out of a man, the way a man lives, the way a man works, the way a man acts, his thoughts, his desires are reflective of his heart. Ben-Hadad was an evil man. He's a man who's greedy. We've already learned that. And he's also a drunkard. And, and he's here now, and it's afternoon, and He's having a big time. In verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first. Ben-Adad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. Now, this is a remarkable picture of God's unlimited power, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. We get into verse 22, and it just continues to be remarkable to see how God's grace is, is evident towards Ahab. And in verse 22, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. It's just as he predicted. It's unbelievable here because that's exactly what happens He's not done. He's going to come back in the spring. And the problem is, is that the Syrians misunderstand the power 
of God. You look at verse 22, and you look at verse 23. Look at 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. They don't understand who Yahweh is. They misunderstand. Remember, the, you know, Baal, the storm god. The, one thing that really helped me years ago, I never had heard this before. I think I was in my 20s, early 20s. And even like, you know, when we look at the plagues of Egypt and we see God delivering his people, all of those plagues were responses to the Egyptian gods. Every one of the plagues, all 10 of them. There would be a God of Egypt, and God Yahweh would raise up a plague to say, let me show you how powerful the Egyptian God is. You know, like one by one, it was a demonstration that Yahweh is God. If the Lord, he is God, then follow him, is what Elijah said on Mount Carmel. And so what's happening is, is God is, 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 is glorified in his power, and he's going to show the futility of the Syrians, the futility of anyone that would come against his glory. And so they think that if we get them on the plains, then we'll beat them because clearly the God of Israel can only protect them in the hills. They misunderstand who he is. And now, in verse 23, we see this all begin to set up. It's fascinating because you see the promise of God brings hope. As Ralph Davis said, the warning of God brings preparation. God's grace is evident not only in the promise of victory. God's grace is evident in the warning to the people. He's giving Ahab not only promise but warning. He's showing who he is. And, And when we think about the word of God and how he has revealed himself through his scripture, God's grace is evident in his word. He gives us promises. He gives us warnings. And that is all of grace. It's the grace of God who reveals who he is and how he's going to work in history. And and think about how he is showing his marvelous grace to Ahab. It really is shocking, isn't it? Uh, Ralph Davis says, all this help, the promise, the direction, the warning is purely always gift. Ahab never seeks a lick of it. It is God-initiated and profit-imposed and utterly baffling. When viewed in the larger context, we are thrown for a loop. Why is such kindness shown to the Ahab of chapters 17 through 19? Why does this king receive any goodness from the Lord? David says, we can't say it's amazing grace. That would be redundant. Grace is by definition amazing. And here it is in possibly its most offensive form. It's, it's, it's offensive. It's scandalous the way God is showing grace to him. Who is this man? We go back. How has he demonstrated grace already to Ahab? He put Elijah in his life. Do you realize that's grace? You may think of Elijah as a thorn in Ahab's side, and that he was because of Ahab's response. But do you understand the kindness of God in putting the truth in front of Ahab? What else has he done? He revealed himself on Mount Carmel. He demonstrated his power even as he was headed towards Jezreel and his palace. Elijah's running before him as a testimony to the power and the majesty of God who he serves. And and here, over and over, he, he gives him not only the victory in Samaria, but now he warns them over and over and over again. Scene three, Ahab wins again. Obviously, the victory is the Lord's. But to the reader, the shock is is that there is a man named Ahab who is this evil, and God has not only provided him victory, verse 14 through verse 21, but now he's provided him warning. And in verse 22 through 30, now he's prepared 
for Ben-Hadad to come into the spring, and he's going to be now not all the way back in Samaria with his forces. Now he's going to be on the border of Syria. He's ready for him. He's ready for him. Why? Because God's grace was evident in his demonstration towards him. When we jump into verse 22, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come against you. I read verse 23 with you. Look at verse 24. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. He did it. I love this because it's just a demonstration, as I'll read later on, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is what this looks like in real time right here in this story with Ben-Hadad and Ahab. You see the power of God. In verse 26, in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. <laughs> but the Syrians filled the country. If I said, you've got one army encamped like two little flocks of goats, you've got another army filling the country, I might ask you, who do you think's going to win? You'd look at me and say, the army that's filling the country, but not in God's providence and power. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Once again, God's revealing his way to Ahab. You shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day... The battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians a 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And notice what's next. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. What, what a remarkable miraculous event. And, and don't miss this because there's reminders of an event that took place in the history of the nation. What does this remind you of? Does this give you faint reminders of Judges chapter 7 and Jericho? And when we think about, our, you know, we think about the walls of Jericho back in earlier days, and we think about seven days that they walked around the city, and we hear that they encamped opposite one another. I was thinking of, um, of Gideon in Judges 7 earlier on. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And now what does God do? Just as he had shown himself strong at Jericho with the walls coming down, the walls come down on the enemy there in Aphek, to demonstrate the glory and the power and the righteous holiness of God. This is the fourth scene. Verses 30 to 34, Ahab releases Ben-Hadad. Strange situation here. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell. Look at verse 31. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. They're like, wait a minute. We know that these people of Israel have demonstrated mercy before. Let's try to appeal to their merciful ways. Let's put sackcloth, sackcloth on. Let's put ropes on our heads. And they do this in verse 32. And what happens? Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, please let me live. And notice, and he said, does he still live? He is my brother. 
Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. This was not wise at all. You basically have here the Syrians are promising a return of cities that had been taken. And you have Ben-Hadad assuring King Ahab that he would have trading privileges in Damascus, the bazaars. He's basically saying, look, let's work together. And what's happening now is that Ahab is not a man of God. And Ahab doesn't understand how to distinguish between the mercy of God and the justice of God. He doesn't understand God's purposes. God was raising up Ahab in this chapter to be a vessel not only to demonstrate his majesty and his glory and his power, to reveal it not only to the people, but to reveal it to Ahab. But in the whole process, God's desire through Ahab was to judge Ben-Hadad. We see that in this next and final scene. Scene five, Ahab is condemned. Ahab is condemned. We get into verse 35 And look what it says. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, now a prophet is going to demonstrate the judgment because Ahab did not heed the word of God. And he demonstrates it to him in a very clear, picturesque way. And so what does he do? Verse 35 the, the, the son of the prophet said his fellow at the command of the Lord. The, God commands this. God is intending to demonstrate something very clear to Israel about his character. We can look at this and misunderstand who God is. God is not playing around. God is demonstrating the serious nature of taking heed to his word. It's not a trivial matter. And so now the prophet even as he looks to his fellow at the command, when he looks to him and says, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And what happens next? Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. God's demonstrating the serious nature of his holiness, the serious nature of his revelation, the serious nature of the authority of his word. If we don't take heed to the word of God, there's judgment that will await us. There's blessing to those who heed it, but there's judgment to those who reject it. In verse 37, then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. So these two previous encounters were to demonstrate One man who was disobedient to the word of God, another man who obeyed the word of God, and now it's going to be a lesson directly to Ahab. The prophet disguises himself. He disguises himself with a bandage. And in verse 39, as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Verse 40, And as your servant was busy here and there, 
he was gone, the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Look at verse 41. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Isn't this remind, doesn't this remind you of Nathan with David? When Nathan gives him the story, and David is furious at the story, and then Nathan looks to David and says, you're the man. The king here hears this story, and what is he? He's like adamant. He's like, it's his own fault. So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Well, the tables are turned. And the prophet says, basically, in paraphrase, he's like, you have decided your outcome because you haven't followed the ways of the Lord. It's interesting because of this word destruction here. It says, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction. That word is used in, in Deuteronomy. It's used in Deuteronomy in speaking about destruction that would come to Israel's enemies in their pagan ways. Look at this passage, Deuteronomy 20. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to what? Complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. It it was a serious situation here. And, And he didn't understand the serious nature of it, but now he was going to be condemned in his lack of following the way of God. I'll tell you, I really struggled with this because I was thinking, okay, God's word is perfect and sure, but how are we going to look at 1 Kings chapter 20 in Chris, during Christmas season? How are we going to look at Ben-Hadad and Ahab and these two battles and this unique demonstration of the power of God, not only in the victory, but also in the revelation that the prophet gives and the story that he gives to Ahab? And I think that there are many, many things that, that pop out here. I want to give you some, some application takeaways this morning that really hit my heart. The first one that I want to give you is we think about 1 Kings 20 this Christmas season is I want you to reflect on God's grace. It, it, I think this, the scandal here is that if you don't understand the backdrop, the grace doesn't stand out as scandalous, does it? If I simply give you a Bible story and tell you something that God did to intervene, you may be moved, you may be amazed, you may think of it as gracious, but when I paint the backdrop of the wickedness of the man, it puts it in a different light, doesn't it? It changes it. I think one of the challenges is that we have to understand when we reflect on the Christmas season is we have to reflect and we have to pray for understanding of the backdrop of what Christmas is all about. I think one of the challenges for Christians who are just as prone as any other believer to go through the motions during Advent is to sort of lose wonder with the story. It's sort of like you tell people about God's grace, God's love, God's gift, until they see themselves in Ahab's place, they can't begin to appreciate the wonder of scandalous grace. You see, we look at Ahab's life, and maybe it's because we're on the outside looking in. We can look at it and go, what a, what a, what a punk. What an immoral, wicked, awful man. He's the, you know, the vilified enemy. 
He's the, the example of the ungodly king. He's the man that refused to bow his knee to Yahweh, even as God demonstrated his power on Mount Carmel. He's the man that chose to be with Jezebel and that wicked woman. And he did all of these things, even married and even condoning the death of God's men and the prophets that were killed by Jezebel. And you look at Ahab and you see how God intervened within his rebellion? You mean God would intervene graciously with Ahab, even though Ahab wasn't bowing in humility before God? And I don't know about you, but it's shocking reading the account of chapter 20. But until we begin to understand the nature of man, the nature of our own lives, I was thinking back about even to the time right there of the flood, when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I was thinking about what Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And, and I was thinking about the miracle that we, even though we are enemies of God, even though, as Romans 1 says, that we've committed acts of treason and rebellion against God, and rather than worship the Creator, we would worship the creation. Rather than receive the Word of God, we would seek to push down and, and hinder the Word of God. And we look at all of this, and we think about the meaning of the season. And I was thinking about John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And notice this. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Friend, and until we see ourselves as breakers of the commandment, until we see ourselves condemned by the very commandment that God gave to Moses on Sinai, we will never begin to understand the grace of God. You see, I really firmly believe until we can begin to identify with the wicked examples in Scripture, we're in no place to begin to understand how scandalous this grace really is. Grace is more comfortable when it's not scandalous. I tell you, have you ever heard sometimes the reaction? And I understand there can be false professions of faith where people profess something they don't even possess. But have you ever noticed that some people, they, they get really nervous when they hear about people on death row trusting in Christ. People revolt against it. They'll say things like, I don't know about that. I don't know about a murderer. I don't know about a guy that could do that, experiencing the grace of God. It's not until we come face to face with great wickedness, great punishment, great sentencing that we can even begin to understand the depths and the mystery and the scandal and the offense of the grace of God. I pray that even as we look at a passage that's not relating to Christmas, but I pray we could learn about Christmas as we reflect on the grace of God exhibited to Ahab is the very grace of God that is exhibited while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second takeaway this morning, I pray that this passage, this Advent season, would not only cause us to reflect on the grace of God, but to worship our powerful God, the God who intervened in this story. You see, as we look over 1 Kings chapter 20, if I said, hey, I'm going to leave the room for a second, I want you to take five minutes and just jot down 
everything that you see that's miraculous about the power of God in this story. Wouldn't it be fun, wouldn't it, to talk about how God intervened, how God worked, how God used a wall to fall to kill all of these thousands of, of, of soldiers? And you're thinking, how? How could that be? And we see the power of God demonstrated in this. I, read, I mentioned it to you earlier, but noticed in Zechariah, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord that is Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God intervened. He did the unthinkable. He recreated images of Jericho. He showed his power. And, and what I, I, as I was considering this and I was thinking, you know, th- there's a lot more parallels here than I may have thought at the beginning. We, when we think about Christmas season, we're thinking about God doing the unthinkable. We're thinking about God intervening in a way that defies all logic, defies all odds. I was reading uh, recently, in, in this passage, you know, we went through Hebrews, and I don't know about you, but it's easy sometimes, isn't it? Even when you study a book that long, it's easy to lose sight and forget about it. But what we see is that he came to us, and he partook of flesh and blood that he might be our great high priest. He came and identified with us. He was sinless, and he yet was sympathetic. He was the great high priest. And the message of Christmas, friend, the message of Christmas this season is not only like seeing yourself in the backdrop of wickedness, in the backdrop of judgment, and yet seeing God's grace intervene, it's also seeing God display his power in ways that we look at and go, how could it be? But in the message of Christmas, in the message of the incarnation, God intervenes in power. The third response or the third takeaway, reflect on his grace, worship our powerful God. Thirdly, this morning, examine your response. We see incredible grace. Earlier, I mentioned Judges chapter 7. It was in my mind because I was thinking, okay, what, do we, what kind of response would have been fitting for Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 20? We don't see any worshipful responses. And I was thinking about the story of Gideon in Judges 7. And remember when Gideon is, uh, is scared and uh, I always, I told you before, I always, I can't remember, I always want to say Gilligan when I say Gideon, but I think it's fitting. It's like when he was uh, hiding in the wine press and God refers to him as old valiant warrior. And it's like just a reminder of how frail we all are. And, and yet, remember when, when God says, hey, if you're scared, take your buddy, take your servant. And Gideon does. And Gideon goes down into the camp. And while he's in the camp, you remember that story? As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped. He, he, when, when he saw God intervene, when he saw God do the unthinkable, it brought him to this practical place, even in the camp, to worship God, even as he was around the enemy. And what do you see? Four major opportunities in 1 Kings chapter 20 for Ahab to worship God. The first one was in 1 Kings 20, 13 through 15. Remember, he's done. His wives and his children are going to be given to Ben-Hadad at the minimum. And now Ben-Hadad's coming for everything that he has. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What? And Ahab goes, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord. Do you realize that it's like verse 3 through 5? Ben-Hadad, the text says that he said, he said, he said. But then you get in around verse 13 and 14, and Yahweh says, Yahweh says. 
And it's almost like God saying, I really don't care what you got to say. My word's going to stand. Not your word, not the word you're giving Ahab, but the word that I declare. And yet in the midst of this declaration, Ahab says, by whom? Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. He's asking, and even after all of this, his response was what? Nothing's recorded because nothing's given. You, you get into the second response he had opportunity. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For the, in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. There's no response. There's nothing recorded. There's no, and, and, and Ahab bowed before the Lord in praise. There's no, there's no sense of, of any response, not only to the power of God, but to the grace of God. The power of God had been revealed. He's already seen it multiple times. The grace of God had been displayed. But what was his response? Nothing. Third time that you see it is when you get over here in chapter 20, 28 through 30. And remember here, he tells them, he says, he warns them once, but then he tells them the victory is going to be given over to you. And then look, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. That's what they thought. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Do you realize that it wasn't, the only time you see sackcloth used was when Ben-Hadad and his cronies are trying to figure out a way to win over the favor of Ahab. It ought to have been earlier. It ought to have been that Ahab put on sackcloth, that Ahab bowed before the king of Israel. But what did he do? The ultimate king of Israel was not Ahab. It was Yahweh. But there's no response. Over and over and over, and you come all the way down. You see yet another opportunity Another opportunity here would have been this. When Ahab is exposed by the prophet, you would think that he might be in a place now to beg for the favor of God, to beg for forgiveness from God. And what does he do? The only thing that it says here, you get into verse 43, and in verse 43, look what it says. Verse 43, it says, And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in chapter 21, you're going to learn the story about Naboth, who had a vineyard, and Ahab wants the vineyard. And when he can't get the vineyard, guess what his response is in 21.4? And Ahab went into his house, what? Vexed and sullen. His response to judgment is no difference, no different than his response to a vineyard that he couldn't own. There wasn't a repentant attitude in Ahab. What about our response today? What about our response? I pray we would see that the message of Christmas is not just an opportunity to see ourselves in need of grace, not just an opportunity to see ourselves as the backdrop for such scandalous grace, for grace that makes no sense. Until we see that we are in the story of grace that doesn't make sense, we never begin to understand grace. Until we begin to understand that we are in a story where God's power is displayed just as great or greater than all miracles he's ever done. Until we're in a place of understanding the only response is worship unto him. The final one I want to give you and then we're done. Don't dismiss God's judgment. Don't dismiss God's judgment. You may be thinking, well, Christmas is not a message of judgment. And I would agree, but I want you to be reminded of something. There's two Advents. When we, when, we, when we celebrate Advent as Christians in the New Covenant era, 
we're not just celebrating the first advent, we're looking towards the second advent. You may be like, what do you mean? The advent is not only the first coming of Christ, we look at the advent for the second coming of Christ. Jesus made it clear in John, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But friend, understand, the God who demonstrates wonderful grace is a God who judges. The God who came to this world to save the world and not to judge it will be coming in the future, and he will be coming, and one aspect of demonstrating his glory will be to bring judgment. And we read, even in Acts, as In Acts, it speaks about what God has fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it's speaking about the time of restoration. In chapter 322, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Now notice this, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Friend, as we look at the story of King Ahab and Ben-Hadad, I pray it would remind us of the miracle of Christmas, not only in God's grace, not only in his power, not only in our response, but to understand that just as Ahab was accountable to how he responded ultimately to the Lord God of Israel, Christmas is a reminder that through the cross, through the incarnation, blessings are received when we listen to God's word and what it reveals about who Jesus is. But when we reject it, if we reject it, just like Ahab, we move from grace into judgment. Friend, as we close today, I pray that uh, even a story like 1 Kings chapter 20 would make you in awe of the activity of God in his world. And today, I want to encourage you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Celebrate his grace. See yourself in need. Celebrate his power. See the miracle of God's substitutionary sacrifice for you. Respond, not flippantly and lightly, but respond by offering up your body. And finally, rejoice that in Christ Jesus, you need not face the judgment of God. Christ took the judgment for you. But friend, if you're on the fence today, understand, those who do not heed the word of God in Christ Jesus, will face the judgment of God. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this, the opportunity to go back and look in in the Old Testament and to see, Lord, how you have worked. And just to think, that you had not forgotten your people and that you were faithful to your promise. We praise you, O Lord. I pray today we would understand a little more of the majesty of your grace. And I pray, O Lord, our hearts would be humbled and grateful before you. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray.